Hello, and welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop Podcast, your one stop for co-op news and reviews. This week, Jason Perez is here to entertain you with some more shelf stories. Yo, my peoples, what's up? Welcome back to Shelf Stories, the channel that tells tales from games, books, and life. And also, welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop Podcast. I'm your host, Jason. Thank you so much for stopping by. Uh, This gentleman was on the show a couple of months ago. He was promoting a game. And now he is back to promote another game. <laughs> and also at my request, if you remember our interview last time, we had a discussion. Uh, he was working on his dissertation, and so he couldn't uh, dive into it. But he has now achieved doctorhood. So uh, we can now speak about all the dissertation stuff and get into everything that he is into. He is a designer. He designed Block by Block or helped design Block by Block. He was one of the co-designers with T.L. Simons, which we talked about before. He has a new project that is coming up for pre-order called Ahoy with Leader Games. I can't wait to have a conversation with this man. He is Greg Loring Albright. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's always good to, to talk to you, Jason. All right, excellent. So um, I this was a surprise. I did not know that you had... I mean, that's, that's kind of how it works, right? In the game industry, it's like, okay, people kind of work on stuff in secret and all of a sudden, what? <laughs> yes, totally. Very cool. So, um, okay, so we're going to do this conversation in three parts. Uh, so we're going to talk about a little bit about Ahoy um, from Leader Games. Uh, and we love Leader Games. <laughs> yes, yes, they're great. You know, uh, it, it's, it's one of those things where it's like they're, you know, we have these publishers like Days of Wonder back in the day. Right. So like, you know, one release a year or like or, or two a year. So it's like an event when they release something. So when they release, it's like, oh, wow, this new, a new game. Oh, my friend designed it. That, that's great. Uh, so we're going to talk about that a little bit. And then we're going to go into the main topic, uh, which we had picked up a little bit in the last show. This topic is talking about digital and tabletop experiences. Um, we have a lot to say <laughs> as gamers, yes, uh, totally. how we, how we experience those two things, how, you know, uh, you know, there are people who love their tabletop and they, they have difficulty with the digital and, uh, you know, how do those two things interact? And you wrote a whole dissertation on it. You talked to a whole bunch of people. So now we can really get into it, uh, in terms of the uh, nuts and bolts of what you discovered. Um, so Liz Davidson was supposed to be on the show. Apologize, apologies for that. Uh, there was, uh, a, Greg was on her show to talk a lot about method. And, you know, you know, uh, getting the people together and all that kind of thing. So, you know, we're not going to get into that so much. Go ahead and check out um, Liz's uh, podcast with Greg for that one. And then at the, at the end, uh, we'll maybe uh, save a surprise. We'll see what happens there. Uh, but first, you have a game to push. So let's push this game. Yes. Oh, yes. Got to no, drop uh, give the plugs. Us, give, give us the elevator pitch for this game. Sure. So Ahoy, um, the the sort of marketing tack that, that Leader is taking is like Root Light. So it's a mm. lightly asymmetric game. It's it's easier to learn. I actually, my my sort of dirty little secret that everybody at Leader knows, but that I, had, I don't talk about a lot is that I've never actually played Root. Um, <laughs> I need to, I want to, it looks awesome, but I've Have never... you played coin games? I have played, I played Cuba Libre, okay. I think is the one I've played. And mm. I've played a bunch of designs. Some, some friends of mine, uh, I'll, I'll specifically shout out Alex Landon Freedom Games in mm. Philly. Uh, he is sort of doing some coin inspired titles that aren't published yet, but um, they're cool. So yes, I get the, I get the vibe. They do not have a, a mark, a cornerstone on the uh, asymmetric genre. Yeah, <laughs> it just so sure. happens to do it the cutest. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. So Ahoy is sort of like their, their leaders kind of positioning it as like the intro to the sort of asymmetric leader mm. game style game. Um, the other pitch, the sort of design brief that I kind of gave for myself when I started working on this game way back in 2015, 
Uh, I was super into like, like sandbox style, sort of like Merchants and Marauders type games, but I couldn't get my normal game groups to play them with me because they were a little too heavy and a little too long. And so the, the sort of pitch no, so I set for myself was little, like, what does a little too long mean to yeah. you? Cause everybody has a different threshold for a little bit too long. We're talking two hours or five hours. Yeah. I mean, I had played Merchants and Marauders one time with one person who knew it and, and two of us who didn't. And that it took us like three or four hours. Okay. And I was like, Oh, I love this. This is so cool. Mm-hmm. But like the player aid is like front and back eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. And I was like, that's too much. So, right. so the, the, my sort of pitch for, for Ahoy that I was sort of using when I was shopping it around to publishers was like merchants and marauders light or, or Zaya legends of a drift system light. Oh, we uh, love that so game. That's what Ahoy <laughs> is. Yeah. So yeah. that's the, it's trying to capture some of that open world sandboxy type feel, but in a, a tighter, it plays in like, uh, like 45 to 75 minutes, depending on player count and experience. Right. Yeah. It's a simple dice placement action selection game. Um, and and it's real cool, and it has Kyle Farron's art, so it looks gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Uh, so okay, so I know Zaya, right? And Zaya is famous for like it's open world, but I think people it's one of those things where it's like you bite off more than you can chew when it's open world, yes. right? So like I want open world, that sounds great. I don't want any um, limitations. I, I want to be able to explore whatever I want, whatever I want, and then then you actually do it, and it's like wow, this is really buggy. And there's a lot of like stuff that's happening that I don't want to happen. Uh, oh, wow. I turned over this tile and I flew into the sun and my, my whole <laughs> fleet is dead. Now uh, you're dead. <laughs> or yeah. And I have to like kind of redo the whole thing. Uh, oh, the same thing will happen with seven continents. With seven continents, like, okay, this open, it's open world. But, you know, so like um, talk a, bit, a little bit about that experience you know, designing through the quote unquote open worldness of a and how you approach some of those difficulties. Yeah, totally. It's, I mean, it definitely, Ahoy, as, as the finished product as it is now, is not, it doesn't have as open world as some of these sort of like, like, you know, officially marketed as open world style board games, because that's, you know, that's kind of the problem or not the problem. It creates that sort of time bloat and component bloat and mechanic bloat of like, mm-hmm. well, I want to be able to do anything. So there need to be rules for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was one of the first things to go in that, you know, I said, I want to keep my, my primary goal was shorter time, lighter, lighter load. So um, it definitely still has some exploratory vibes. It's not not a set map. It's a tile laying game. So you start with two tiles and each tile has four different spaces on it. And then as your ships go out, you sort of build this map out. So there's some exploration and there is some sort of choice. Like it's not, um, it's not like some of the, uh, this is, I'm not saying this to be derogatory. Some of the coin games or some asymmetric games are sort of like your faction is doing this thing. And you got to, you know, if you're the, the mob in, in Cuba Libre, you got to get money and take right. it around the island and pay people off to do what you want. Um, and, and in Ahoy, because of that kind of open world design directive, my goal was to let the factions do different things. And so, and, you know, everyone has sort of a primary way to score points, but everyone can also kind of interact with this, this crew deck and recruit crew. And there's kind of this like side mission of, you can get coins by going to different places on the map and everybody has good things they can do with coins. And so there is some, some choice to like, what am I going to do with my ships once they're on this map? Um, but yeah, that, that, that balance was really important as I was designing the game of like, how do I give people a sense of like, Oh, I can go and do a lot of stuff, not anything while also again, keeping it to this kind of like one hour ish time frame. And what are some of the things that the uh, factions can do? So like in root, it's very clear. So, uh, you know, the Marquis de Cat uh, is like covering the board and they want to keep right. covering the board. And you have the 
um, the birds that can, and I'm, I'm going off the base. I don't think I've, I've done a lot of the expansion stuff, but like they have this combo chain that, uh, that they want to accomplish and they want to be able to kind of like uh, trigger off. And so like, you know, the marquee would be an example of like, okay, I want to look at the map a lot. And then the birds would be an example, but I want to look at my own cards a lot. And so like they, you know, not only do they want different things, you have different attention in your uh, space. So it's like super, like, you know, that's, it's real super interesting. I know you haven't played Root, <laughs> so I'm pretty nice. <laughs> I do, I have read about it. I've seen some videos. So like, I know what you're talking about. I know about the programming <laughs> game that the birds It's are a playing. computer game. Like you, you just talked about computer games. It's one of the most well-regarded computer games. I need, to, I need to get the app. It's true. Yes. I, should, I should do that at the very least. Um, but <laughs> so, yeah, yeah so, so I'll talk a bit about what the, what the factions offer, how different they are. Yeah, so in, in Ahoy, there's there's four player seats. It's a two to four player game. And uh, two of them are the same if you're playing with four players. So there's two smugglers. And the, the sort of uh, genesis of the game was actually a fully symmetric game where everybody was a smuggler. And it was basically a pick up and deliver game. You would go to these islands and pick up cargo and then it would say, oh, take this to a red planet. And then it would, you know, uh, it was a space game at one point in its life. So as I talk mm. about the history of the game, Sometimes I, I mix my themes, but um, <laughs> yeah, so, so they, that's what they're doing. They're doing a pickup and deliver game and they sort of pay attention to the cards differently. There's this market of crew cards with kind of like game changing abilities, very sort of like card tableau, you know, very, uh, it, it feels like the sort of, that's like one of Cole Worley's trademarks, right? Of like the crafting cards in Root or the cards in Pax Premier. So you have this row of cards that everybody can get crew. But the smugglers, the cards also have a secondary aspect, which is like, oh, I don't want to take this as crew. I want to take it as cargo. Okay. And that's what the smugglers do. They want to pick up cargo okay. and move it from place to place. And they might grab someone as crew to use their special ability. Mm. Then when they drop off that cargo, those, those tiles become more valuable. So every tile has a little die in the middle of it. And every time a cargo gets delivered there, the number on the die goes up. And the smugglers don't super care about that, except that the other two factions are, are playing an area control game. The, the Bluefin Squadron, which is like uh, evil sharks, and the Mollusk Union, which is like cute shelled critters. Um, and they're did, fighting. Did Leader do that? Did Leader say this needs to be cuter? I, I, did, I didn't really give them, you know, I, I gave them this game. It was like sort of a Star Wars with the serial numbers filed off theme. Mm. And, and I pitched it to Cole at, at PAX and he said, you know, they, they had Ark sort of already in the queue. He said, we already have a space game coming, so we're probably not going to keep the theme. And if that's fine, cool. And then as they were assessing the game and as we moved towards signing a contract, they talked with me about the potential themes they would, they would do. But they didn't specifically say to me, this needs to be cuter and have animals. That was definitely an, an in-house thing, which I'm totally fine with. It's great. They, everything <laughs> looks cool. Um, but awesome. so those two factions are fighting over the islands. They're trying to control the islands. And then at the end of the round, you check control. And the islands that have that have a higher dice value are uh, more, they're worth more points. So the smugglers are kind of in influencing this area control game and that if the smugglers never deliver anything to an island, the, those two kind of warring factions are never gonna wanna fight for that island. So that's kind of the, the ecosystem of it. You have your, and then those two area control factions play differently. The, the Bluefin Squadron is more like your kind of, uh, they were the, the empire in the Star Wars version. So they just get tons of cheap little units and they can mm -hmm. kind of, dominate the board but they're very easy to kind of pick off um and then the mollusk union has lots of plan cards and little comrade guys who they can recruit on islands and they build up this kind of underground resistance strength and then they spend those tokens off of their islands to use their plans that let them like 
you know, in one fell swoop, they can destroy like six of the the shark mm-hmm. guys and suddenly have an uprising. So there's a little bit of the, uh, the, the block by block vibes coming through as you might be able to tell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. But that's your, that's your, your faction. So you've got pick up and deliver. You've got a sort of like area control, very, not basic in a bad way, but they're just going to drop a ton of units. And then you've right. got this sort of like schemey, planny, long-term thinking area control. Okay. Uh, and how many players? Uh, two, two to, to four. four. Two to four. Uh, yep. So this is the one-stop co-op shop I have to ask. And it is also um, a part of Root. A huge part of what made that game successful was the, the Better Bot Project. So, you know, it like solo and co-op came in the basic package of Root, but they were kind of like stillborn. And so a lot of people went back into the system and just like made these incredible ways of animating the different factions. And so not only solo, but like if you wanted to put like a bot faction into your multiplayer game to have like just mix it up, you do that too. So do we anticipate stuff like that along the way? I don't, I'm, I'm not 100% on the most recent marketing updates from Leader. So I don't, I don't, I'm going to say, I don't think there's a co-op or a bot in the main box. Um, but I will say, you know, co-op and, and solo heads keep talking it up. Keep, you know, I, I want I want there to be expansions to this game. I have ideas for more stuff mm. to put into a hoy. So um, <laughs> that would be really cool. And I know the folks on the the leader Discord, the Woodland Warriors, are already scheming and plotting. So I'm hoping uh, mm. if a hoy lands and if people like it, there will be some of that that fan action, that fan creation happening because the game uh, it it does sort of like it functions as an ecosystem. And so I think there could be a way. I haven't spent a lot of time on this, but I think there could be a way to to make versions of the co-op and the solo and the stuff like that, that would, that would function in this kind of game system. We Hopefully don't, I'm not talking yeah. out of turn leader games. Don't come at me. <laughs> we're trying to uh, excite the people. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's we're, right. We're, we're being very clear like that, you know, this isn't in the, this isn't real, but this if isn't you want to yeah. think about it, please do. Right. And that's our goal. <laughs> on the one-stop co-op show. We want to spread the gospel of solo and co-op because we, I mean, these communities sustain these, these games. Uh, real, if you can play real. it on yourself over and over again. Uh, so yeah, we're just trying to spread the word over here. Uh, okay. So um, anything, any last words about, uh, you know, Ahoy, what, what is, is the pre-order live now as we speak? It will or? go live uh, in early August. Early um, August they're okay. waiting on some shipping updates to officially say a date. I, I was told specifically, don't say August 1st. So at some point in early <laughs> August, they said, you know, it's not going to be late August. Mm-hmm. They won't have, they won't have saleable copies at Gen Con. I know a lot of people have been asking, um, but, but pre-orders will go live in early August and then expect the game in, in Q4 of this year. So by the mm-hmm. end of this calendar year at the very, very latest. So not being Kickstarter, which is an interesting conversation in and of itself, but Correct. that's a little bit beyond our thing. Maybe I'll get, you know, people from Leader on here because they're an interesting company anyway. So it's yeah, be interesting totally. to talk about. They, and, we, and I have talked to Cole before. So yeah. uh, it'd be nice to kind of have a conversation about that, but we're going to hold off on that. It is just a pre-order, people. Uh, there's not a whole bunch of exclusives or all this other stuff. It's like, okay, go on their website, buy it, and then uh, you might have, uh, I, mean, I mean, pirate games, we do have some pirate games, but they're not like a wash. You know, it's not one of those like, you know, a one we're going to, you know, we have a whole bunch of options here. So, I mean, this might be, uh, and if it's leader, we have a chance to, you know, see something really good. So. Totally. And it's funny. I know Cole was saying when, when he picked up the game for me and when we signed the contract, they were sort of locked in on the pirate theme at that point. Mm. And they were like, okay, there's not a lot of new pirate stuff. You know, Merchants and Marauders came out. There was sort of like a first, there was a bunch of early pirate stuff. There was like the first version of Libertalia. Right. And then since between the signing of the contract and the like promotion and release of, of Ahoy, now there've been a bunch of new pirate games. I know AEG did one that's about like flicking cubes and 
Stonemeyer did a new release of Libertalia <laughs> and stuff. So uh, we're hopefully in a, a big pirate renaissance and Ahoy can be a part of that. Okay. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, I have a lot to say about uh, Pirates of the Caribbean and all that kind of stuff. We won't get to that too much. Uh, Easter egg for people. If, uh, it's been a stressful if, if you week know, for me. <laughs> if you, want, if you know, uh, don't know what we're talking about, then we're just, you're just going to have to sit there and wonder. <laughs> anyway, better okay, off. so um, cool. So that is Ahoy from Leader Games. Please go ahead and check out the pre-order. We're going to have a link to the uh, Leader site on the, in the show notes below. Uh, okay, so we are going to shift over to the actual reason why I invited Cole on. So I invited Cole on about a month and a half ago, when I right when he posted about de- defending his dissertation. I did not know that he had was working on a game for uh, that was going to be a big release. So this is a happy uh, coincidence. But we are, I wanted to uh, come back to this conversation. So we were talking about uh, block by block. Uh, block by block is coming. Right, it's getting manufactured. It's the the whole process is churning, and I hope to have my copy at some point. <laughs> soon, yeah. I, soon, I, really. I'm not allowed to say specific dates about block by block right. either, but but soon. It's churning. It's churning, and it's yes. bubbling, and we're gonna get it. We're gonna get it. Okay, cool. Uh, okay, so along the way, uh, Greg talked about his dissertation. So um, let's just start there. Let's just start in terms of uh, explain to the peoples what your what you wrote about, why you got interested in it, and you know what are some of the major takeaways that you would like people to take away? Yeah, totally. So I I matriculated into the Drexel University in Philadelphia's communication, culture, and media program in 2017. And I was interested in writing about board games. I had done a little bit of of writing with Analog Game Journal. And I was like into games and loosely starting to design stuff. And uh, my, my lovely partner was like, you're reading all these books and doing all this writing and you should just get a degree for it. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Um, and so uh, the, the Drexel program, there are a number of places that let you study games, although games academically usually means video games. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a growing number of places that that now focus on analog games, on yeah, board games, also, card games, um, role-playing games. But having done some of the research myself, uh, a lot of the research focus on violence in video games. So yes. it's not even like, you know, how do they work or what do they do? It's like, okay, what are they doing to the children kind of thing? Right. There's this sort of hard media effects paradigm that's just like a very uh, well-intentioned, I think, but a little bit short-sighted. Um, right. I mean, it's attention grabbing. Like, I mean, yes. you, you study, a, uh, you publish a study and it talks about, you know, either, either proves or disproves some kind of thesis that somebody has about violence video games and you can get attention for it. And, you know, there's a whole thing in scholarship about like, okay, a lot of it is unfortunately, you know, trying to get attention for yourself for your website and your CV and all kind of stuff. So that's where a lot of the stuff goes, even though Here I am on I'm, a podcast I'm, talking about my academic work. It's, we're all, we're all doing it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so there's not a, a wealth of places to go to study board games and the, the Drexel program is not specifically a board game program, but it is a specifically interdisciplinary, like they recruit people who want to study weird stuff. Some mm. of my colleagues were studying like, tiki bars or gender and Indian advertising or skateboarding culture. Um, so, so I, I fit right in, in that I had this sort of weird niche interest. Um, and initially my plan was to write a dissertation just sort of about hobby board games in person. And I proposed, you know, going and visiting game groups and talking to people about games. And, um, the program is a communication and media studies program. My specific interest is more in the media side. So I was not as interested in doing sort of like an ethnography of hobby board game culture as I was in thinking about board games as media, um, which is like a little bit of a jump sometimes because we often think of electronic media as the only media, but they are a mediating force. So Mm -hmm. anyway, I proposed this dissertation that involved 
sitting down with a lot of people and playing board games. And then the pandemic happened. And so I had to rewrite my proposal to include digital gaming. Um, and I think actually for the, for the better, right? There's a lot of really interesting yeah. stuff happening on sites like VGA and Roll20. I also expanded my scope to include role-playing games. And so um, I ended up, I, I observed 24 game sessions, 11 in person and 13 online and compared, you know, not, not video games, but digital adaptations of board games, ways that people who want to play board games in person can use digital tools to do that. Okay, so we're talking about, so specifically we're talking about kind of board game adaptations of video games, so like either apps or BGA, and BGA is like killing it. I mean, every, they're, yeah. they, so uh -huh. like we were scared when Asmodee appropriated BGA, it's like, oh no, they're gonna get crushed. We have gotten big releases of BG, uh, on BGA all the time and the people, and it's just kind of going, going. Uh, so uh, yeah, I mean, it's a huge thing. And then the pandemic happened, as you were saying. Uh, so uh, so, the, so that's what we're talking about, just to be, uh, be very clear. We're not talking about just like straight up video games. Uh, so I'll start here. Uh, my line about this stuff, and I've been thinking about it for a long time, uh, is that board games offer a quantity experience on the dig digital area, and then the physical product offers a quality experience. Hmm. So then that's kind of yeah. how I, you know, because you can get a billion games of an app, but it's like eating a whole bunch of like buffet. It's like, okay, gonna, <laughs> you know, but like if I really want the rich experience that I'm going to have to have it in the tabletop space, that's kind of how I've thought about it. And I think it lines up a little bit of what you were saying. I mean, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, totally. I, when I started the project, I, I myself, you know, I got into board games because I don't love computers. Um, I before had been working in like video and photo production and web design, spent a ton of time dealing with computers. And I was like, let me get into something that's less screeny. Um, and then of course the pandemic happened. Um, but uh, I, so I thought I sort of coming from my own, you know, biases and perspective, I anticipated that all these board gamers that I interviewed and watched play would say, yeah, you know, I'm doing this because of the pandemic. But as soon as it's safe to do so, I'm jumping back into real world gaming and, and throwing BGA out the window. Um, and that's not uh, what I found. Uh, people, you know, even people who were like, well, I don't like this and that. And the other thing about digital found things to like about it. Nonetheless, like I, I visited a game group that was like, yeah, you know, we are people in this discord server and we like are friendly with one another here. And then we all play games together as a way to kind of maintain our friendship. And so even once it's safe to gather in person to play board games, we're going to keep doing our weekly, you know, Discord server game night on BGA mm. because we want to play games with these specific people and we're all over the country. So um, that was cool. That was neat to see. There's, there were also some findings of like, yeah, like people, like you're saying, who wanted to like, like get the reps in, who wanted to be able to do a lot of games and not have to, a big thing people liked about about digital adaptations. I, I keep saying BGA, it's like the, the placeholder. I did use other software and watch people use other software, but mm -hmm. um, was like, you don't have to set up and clean up some fiddlier games. People were like, yeah, you know, I'm now spoiled for playing a game like, um, I don't know, like Castles of Burgundy in person because through the ages. there's lots of pieces to move through, sure, the, through the ages. <laughs> you like, you know, the computer does all that for me. And, right. and I, that is like the least pleasant part of playing that game in person. And now I can get to the parts I like online. So. I was surprised by this like positivity towards online adaptations of, mm -hmm. of board games. I definitely think that the people who are negative uh, towards it get a lot of airtime, you know, and they, I mean, like, you know, I, I say a lot, uh, good stuff is slippery, bad stuff is sticky. So like we have this idea that there's a, a, a real, you know, kind of back and forth about that because you'll have the, you always have somebody, Oh, it's app integrated. I don't like it. It sucks. One, one rating. Uh, and so it's like, that catches a lot of attention, but what you found, was that people, and I like the way you said it. I like, not that 
the experience is the same, but they found things to like. Yeah. Is that, a, is that the phrase that I would like, we would like people to come away with? hundred percent. Yeah. I'm glad you, you locked in on that because yeah, these, you know, these people, and to be clear, I was working qualitatively, so I didn't do any surveys. I didn't do any numerical regressions. This is all just sort of like a sense of the scene. And so I can't say 62% of people like digital or whatever. That's not the kind of work I'm doing. Um, but yes, people, even people who said, you know, oh, I, I very much prefer overall, if I only had to pick one, I would take tabletop games without a computer any day of the week still would say, but I like these things about playing digitally. And that kind of nuance was, was cool to see. Um, and, and it opened my own mind. You know, I have not been a big fan of, of playing and play testing digitally, even though that's what I've been doing. But um, yeah, I was like, okay, there are things to like about this and that's cool. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned before about kind of set up and tear down. Um, here's another one. And you said you, you, you wrote about this in your statement. Thank you for sharing it, by the way. Of course. Um, thanks for reading it. <laughs> not the whole thing. Okay. No, no worries. <laughs> any amount, any but, amount is more than most dissertations get read. So thank exactly. you. Exactly. <laughs> uh, okay. So there was one part that left out of me because I'm have, I have this discussion a lot, the rules. So you talk, I, I will disagree. And like, you know, set up and tear down is not the worst part of gaming. It is the rules. Uh, be, and for various reasons, right? For various reasons. Because, um, you know, A, there's the learning learning curve, which is never fun. If you're in a learning curve, you're learning heavy games over and over again. Uh, uh, B, if you are a person who loves the rules, maybe you love the rules. Um, and you have to play with people who aren't, who don't feel, who don't feel that way. So there could be some friction there. So uh, this was really interesting about how in tabletop, there's more of a flexibility on some people's parts. They, you know, because they don't have that kind of overlord that's kind of impressing the rules. So like, you'll, you'll occasionally have a person that says like, well, this makes sense. This may be against the rules or against the rules as written, or there's an ambiguity here, but then you have people like, oh, those are the rules where in a digital top, like so much of that is handled. So much of that is handled. So like in, in a way it offers kind of the rulesy person a sense of safety. You know, it's like, okay, I, I know I'm getting the quote unquote right experience here. Uh, so talk about that a little bit. Talk about what you found in, in those two areas. Yeah, totally. That was such an interesting aspect to explore that like a lot of digital adaptations, but crucially not all digital adaptations enforce some or all of the game rules. And some people liked that and some people didn't. I remember one of my interviewees was talking about how, you know, they wanted to learn the game and having the rules enforced meant they couldn't learn the game as well as they wanted to, because rather than having to like work through, okay, I can't put my piece here during this phase. Why not? Oh, it's that rule. I looked it up. I figured it out. They would just, you know, the computer would just say, nope, can't do that. Or it would just display all allowable moves and it wouldn't say, well, this space is not allowable because of rule A and this space is not allowable because of rule B. And so having the computer take away some of that agency from them, Mm -hmm. they didn't love. They wanted to be able to kind of get deep into the rules and flesh out the entire system for themselves. Oh, that's interesting. Like, because it's not necessarily like, okay, I want to cheat. It's more like, I want to do a move that feels good to me. And if it turns out, that it's not so, you know, it's not kind of in the rule set. Like, I'm not going to take it back. <laughs> right, right. I already like did it. Say, well, <laughs> you know, I learned this game online and then I went to play it in person and I was like, oh, I didn't actually learn this game as well as I thought I did because the mm-hmm. computer was was sort of, I had offloaded some of my rules brain to the computer. Um, mm, and, and this, you know, this was an interesting, this is one of my big sort of like takeaways from the dissertation is that digital versus not digital is a big divide. And, you know, it's probably the most important and most obvious divide in terms of media use, right? You're using a screen to play digitally and not, not. But 
if you collapse that divide and think about like, well, what about dividing games by rules enforced and not rules enforced? And then mm -hmm. something like, like I watched a group, oh, it's uh, going on the half hour now. This clock is bonging. <laughs> um, uh, the uh, I watched a group play Magic the Gathering, mm. the uh, tabletop simulator, which didn't enforce all of the rules. And so it had a lot of these same table dynamics as a, a an in-person board game where they had to say, well, what about this card interaction and how does this work? And, you know, it was it was different in that it was digitally, but it was the same in that the players had to sort of work as a group to to take this agency and say, here's how we think the game should function based on the rules as we understand them. And there was no computer doing that for them. So that was also cool to see that that things like tabletop simulator and tabletopia and tabletop playground and there's a bunch now but that these have things in common with with in-person analog tabletop games that things that are more more automated like purpose-built apps like the root app or like bga don't where the computer is doing the enforcement for you mm -hmm. okay so i think like in terms of the agita right um the agita of well the people that resist app integrated games or digital adaptations of games. I think the agenda is that there's like a, like a, a one pie of games. And the more we allow this kind of like digital space to come in, the less we're going to get actual tabletop experiences. Or like there's this idea that like, well, there's some people out there think that they're the same. And so it doesn't matter. I'm going to give you digital and tabletop and whatever, whatever. And so like, that's the fear. That's the, that's, I think so. Uh, that some of the resistance comes in. So you didn't find that. Yeah. I, yeah, and I mean, like, I understand that that fear. I understand that worry, right? I part of the tradition that I'm working in is called media ecology, which is this sort of right. How to how to summarize media ecology in one sentence? I won't <laughs> look it up. It's I know those two words. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Um, but anyway, one of the one of the sort of like like important two of the important media ecology scholars are Lewis Mumford and Jacques Ellul, and they have these ideas of the technique of like there's this kind of pervasive technocratic capitalist mode that's eventually going to like eat all life mm. and i sort of feel that mm. fear with this fear of the digital right that people mm -hmm. think like oh well tabletop games analog are this kind of safe refuge from the technique and and that's not the case everything per per these theorists the technique has already eaten everything and we are never free of it but that's a little down and we don't need to go too deep into technique mm. theory. But anyway, all this to say, I don't think that's the case. And I, I think this is where you're going as well, that there's actually, there's room for growth and there's mm. space that like I, in one of the chapters, I interviewed Cole Worley uh, at Leader Games and um, because we were emailing about Ahoy stuff and I was like, hey, do you have a minute? And I like, I, I was looking for this like confirmation for this statement of this idea that I kind of was sensing and I couldn't find anything published about it. And so I said, Cole, can you answer some questions for me? And, and he gave me this great statement, which was this idea that like publishers uh, and specifically leader, I assume other small publishers um, view digital adaptations as a, a marketing tool. Like I was mm -hmm. talking to him about, you know, on the leader discords, they have a ton of people who are like creating mods on like Vassal for games like Oath and Root that people don't have to pay for. You just get it for free. And I said, isn't that cannibalizing your market share? Why are you encouraging these people? Why are you giving them, you know, uh, Cole and, and the leader team gave some of these modders just like the print files for Oath and were like, you know, go wild, make your own adaptations. And, and I was like, that doesn't make any sense from a capitalistic standpoint. And he said, well, no, it does because we view all digital adaptations as advertising, mm -hmm. and I'm paraphrasing him here, for our physical games. And that if the digital space grows, if people get into board gaming generally, leader games specifically, you know, this specific game specifically, 
that will eventually funnel towards people saying, mm -hmm. let me play this the way it was meant to be played or the way it was originally played on the table. And then, you know, leader as a company with high production values knows, okay, our, our tabletop games will hold up to comparison to the digital. Mm -hmm. This isn't supposed to be like an ad for leader games. They're just the case study, but I'm sure other publishers have this idea too, right? That if I yeah, play, yeah. Yeah. I play Kingdom Builder on BGA, I'll think, mm -hmm. oh man, that game is cool. I don't want to have to log them on a computer all the time. I'll go and buy Kingdom Builder. So yeah, I, um, I think that logic mm -hmm. holds that the digital can serve as an expansion for the physical. I just interviewed uh, Shadi Torbe, who designed the Oniverse games. Cool, and cool. he was talking about how the um, Onirim, the app came out for Z-Man. And there was a surge in demand for the board game, like a surge. They, they was like, they could not keep that, the, the product in, because they didn't, well, I don't, I, this was like a couple of years ago. I don't think they quite realized or like one department realized another person was, another department was kind of behind. Uh, but in terms of that, you know, the digital being an advertise, advertisement, they don't cannibalize each other. Like right. they can coexist. And I think that's kind of the thrust of, or at least one thrust of this conversation is uh, helping the audience understand that like digital and tabletop, they are, they may be the same game, quote unquote, the game system, but they're doing such different things in such different ways that there's room for both, that they're not going to cannibalize. We're not that it's not the technocratic thing that's going to like dominate all of our tabletop and wipe it all out. I, I, you know, the, the human spirit endures or whatever, <laughs> however you want to put it. <laughs> And we have actual like, you know, research and thinking that has gone into, I, it's not just me theorizing, you're confirming it really with your observations. Yeah, I would, I, I, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say I'm confirming it. I'm, I'm working in a qualitative okay. model. So I'm kind of like setting out a hypothesis and saying, this is, from my observations, this seems to be going on. You echo and, you know, it. <laughs> the kind of the, the sort of like, at least in the social sciences, the sort of research model, right, is like qualitative theoretical scholars like me kind of get in the nitty gritty, talk to people, see the right. thing happening, propose a theory, kind of pull all this data together, this, this empirical qualitative data and say, here's a theorization. And then we hand it off to a quantitative scholar who mm. tests it and says, is this, you know, do the surveys bear this out? Is this what's happening? And, and then that cycle continues. Um, that's an oversimplification. And, and so do you have one? Do you have a quantitative person that I can invite on the show? <laughs> no, although, I mean, there is, there's a ton of new work happening in the, mm. the analog gaming space. And I know people like, you know, everyone loves to shout her out, but doctor, newly doctor, Tanya Pabuda yep. uh, does some, some quant work, does some surveys. Um, Dr. Paul Booth, who was on Liz Davidson's show, mm -hmm. who was on my dissertation committee, did some survey research. So it's happening. It's out there. No one, no one has, because my dissertation is so new and because it's not like a book yet, right. uh, no one has sort of taken my theories and, and published a paper that says they're total garbage or they are confirmed, mm -hmm. which is kind of one of the next steps. Okay. I'll take it. <laughs> Great. Please, please do. Okay, so um, so that's the 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 ground level stuff in terms of digital and tabletop, comparing them. Let's talk about the media aspect of it, which is that which is where we um kind of leapt off of in terms of that last conversation. It's specifically, I remember, I remember, because we're talking about um, so by media we mean like you know communication to the culture, right? You know, so uh, you know this is the games aren't just games, aren't they? Aren't just like things like you know the human beings make them, human beings who are cultural beings. And who put their cultural biases and ideas in games. They're always from a perspective. And they're not just like they're sitting there. They're, they communicate to the player. And they may even teach something to the player. The player may even learn something. Probably may even kind of be affected by it. There's a whole kind of mental part. So you have to kind of buy that, you know, in order to understand this part of the conversation games as media. So that's number one. Um, so we talked about like, okay, how much can games really affect? people 
Like it's media, it's talking to us, but it's not like I, you know, I play a Nazi game now. All of a sudden, I'm a Nazi, right? <laughs> so, I mean, I guess like begin to explore that conversation, that space of like, okay, uh, what can games say to us, and how successful are they in actually, you know, affecting minds? Yeah. I mean, so this gets into like classic media and communication studies theory that, you know, I learned in my first semester as a, as a media studies grad student. And, and I'll, I'll teach you this theory briefly, you and, and your listeners, which is called the magic bullet theory. Yeah. And this is kind of like the most simple, like when you read these headlines about like violent video games, right. create school shooters or whatever, like this is, this is the magic bullet theory. And the magic bullet theory is, is old and debunked. And, but basically what it proposes is, a medium, you know, a movie, a video game, a board game, a book can can create a message and shoot it into your head. And then suddenly mm. the message that the book or the video game or the board game said is now a message that you fully accept. And you're like, okay, I played a violent video game. Now I'm going to go be violent. Um, and that's like a very naive view. Communication scholars have have moved beyond this, have understand that more complex things are going on. And but so we have it as a culture. I know, on. right. And so I mean, this is this is, I guess, part of my my public service is to you and your listeners, like think about now now you have a word for it, right? The magic bullet theory. Mm. And and question that when you see people putting forth the magic bullet theory, oh, you know, people are gonna play block by block and they're gonna go loot stores. Like, no, that's not that's not how media works. Um so uh yeah, so anyway, uh different things are happening. Um and I forget the question because I got excited okay. to talk about the magic bullet theory and how wrong it is. <laughs> well, okay, what games can and cannot set, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, in terms yeah. of in terms of games as culture as purveyors of culture, right? So, like, what they cannot say, they cannot just like, you know, give you the bullet into the head, right? You're not going right. to become they a Nazi, game, a Nazi game. Uh, are board games like better or worse than other medium? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm sure there's been work on this um, and I don't have it at my fingertips to cite, but I think board games are specifically good at teaching people about procedures and how systems work. There's this idea from, from Ian Bogos called procedural rhetoric. And it's specifically about, it's about all games, but I like to think about it with board games where it's like uh, a rhetoric. So an argument, a, a sort of like statement that a game is making occurs not necessarily via its text, right? It's like, you can, you can read the problematic Phil Eklund essay about how colonialism is good, but that's not like that. The, that's not if Phil Eklund wanted to make that argument in an essay, he should have just written a book. Right. The real argument of what's going on there is going to come through the game's procedures. And that's what procedural rhetoric says. So I think board games are good at that. Board games let put you in a position of agency and show you your constraints and say, okay, I am, you know, uh, a Titan of industry. I can buy, I can sell, I can trade. And that's what I can do. And they, they don't give you this, this other sense of like, well, there are other things going on. And so that's the constraint, right? They, they give you agency. They say, you get to do things and you get to see the consequences of what happens with those things. But there's also this sense of a board game can't fully model every aspect of a system because then it would just be the real world. And so it has to cut things out. It has to abstract things. Sure. And so that balance of like agency plus constraint, I think is what board games are really good at. And so that's where the perspective of the game designer comes in, where they say, what are we, what are we modeling? What are we going to let you choose to do? And what are we going to show you are the outcomes of the things you've chosen to do? And what are we going to ignore and just cut and say, we can't, we can't fit everything in. We have to throw this out. So I hope that's a good answer to your question. Well, okay. It leads into exactly where I want to go. And is that the third part of that conversation? So, and it's the work that I'm doing, 
right? And, uh, and at this point, it's a you know known thing. I'm the for the cultural consultant that redid Puerto Rico to the whole new um, thing. Thank you very much. <laughs> Congrats! It's super exciting. Very super exciting, and I'm not going to say too much about it because um, at least in terms of the product release. Uh, that's a layers back, you know, let them do the marketing for it. But I want I know, to talk I about know how that. it is to, to right. be under an embargo. So I right. process. So I, I just want to talk about kind of the process of the stuff that I can't talk about. So, okay. Um, a lot of, a lot of the resistance to it is like, okay, I'm not going to go out and, you know, say that a colonization was good. I'm, I'm not going to go out and be a colonizer. You know, it's not going to make me do these things. Just like if I play a Nazi game, I'm not going to go out and be a Nazi. Um, so like, okay. And so in a way that magic bullet thing operates as a straw man. So like, uh, you know, so I'm making a, a critique and the other person is accusing me of doing magic, of saying magic bullet, and they're kind of dismissing my whole thing out of hand. So I, I, I so you've given me a way to kind of dart through that. So it's not like we learn, it's not like a person learns to be a colonizer. It's that in the procedure of many Euro games, the procedure is telling you move by move by move by move. And it's very important to note that, that this is this emerges from all the movements you make in a colonization game. They're teaching us that colonization was this unproblematic good thing. Yeah, totally. totally. It, it, okay, is that where we're going with this? Yeah, okay. and that I think like, like to get back to the effects question of like what do, what do board games do to us? They don't do the magic bullet thing, but they, they do do something. Right. It's like otherwise it wouldn't be problematic to have all these colonizer games out there. And I think one thing that they that they do and, you know, you have more sort of first person insight into this is they cause harm to people who are represented as being harmed in those games, whether, you know, that representation is explicit or, or erased. You know, both of those things, harm causing and erasure are bad. Um, but the other thing that they do, I think, is they sort of shape a cultural narrative. And this we're going to I'm going to drop another com theory. This is the billiard ball theory. Mm. And I want to say this is Gerbner, but don't come at me if I'm wrong. Um, my advisor is like, like yelling right now if he's watching. Um, <laughs> how could you? How could you forget who <laughs> wrote the billiard ball theory? But the billiard ball theory says basically, um, if you imagine a, a pool table and there's magnetic billiard balls, the, the media sending the message. So in this case, co colonizer board games, they sit on the table somewhere and they exert an influence. And the billiard ball that is me starts to sort of roll towards it a little bit. Mm. And so maybe before I played original Puerto Rico, I thought, oh, colonizers are bad. And then I'm like, hmm, I can sympathize with them. I did the game that does their thing. And the more and the more and the more then I pull in this direction. So that's the billiard ball theory. And, and I think I have a little more, I'm like skeptical of media effects theories in general, but I have a little more sympathy for that one, that these sort of like cultural narratives can be produced and reproduced and reproduced and reproduced. And it's good to disrupt that production. It's good to put a different magnetic billiard ball at the other end of the table, which is what you're doing, and try and pull the billiard balls back in this direction. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think like in terms of, you, you mentioned that word harm. That's just a difficult word, right? Because like, boy, it's only a board game. You know, how can, I, I'm sorry if people say that, but you have no idea the comments I get people. Right. You have no idea what people are just feel free to just say, right? In my comments or even in my DMs. So it's like, I, I mean, I'm not like, you know, saying that it's unique to me, but like I'm, it's, it, it affects you. So anyway, we're not saying that like the experience of playing a board game is going to harm Puerto Ricans or going to harm, uh, you know, whoever it is, Mombasans or, you know, people, whoever was arch archipelago. I mean, we have a lot of these things. Uh, Goa, you know, Goa and the land in India. Um, we're not saying that like, you know, you play this and you get harmed. What we're saying is 
that cultural message, and, I, and really I want to focus on the cultural message. I, I do a lot with that. Like that cultural message gets into the ecology, gets into the culture. And it's, I don't, I don't know. It's like, it's, it's kind of like, I, I struggle to come up with good um, analogies for this, but it's like, if other people who have zero knowledge whatsoever, I mean, I think of it like a, in terms of cups, right? Let's think of it, you know, when it comes to colonization, most people don't know. Like we weren't taught this stuff in school. We're taught 492, Columbus sells the ocean blue and, and move on, right? Uh, we, we're, we're all of a sudden, we're in like the colonial time, like a week. So <laughs> what are you going to talk about? So there's not a lot of knowledge. And when Puerto Rico was made or all these other games are made, there's not a lot of knowledge. It's a bunch of German dudes uh, who are coming from their cultural experience. Uh, totally. and, they, and they want, and they hearken back to this kind of like these primordial times. Catan too. We'll get to Catan in a little bit of a second. Uh, so they're coming at it from like an like think of it like an empty glass. So these board games fill the glass with the message, and it's much more impactful because there's no knowledge, right? They're not they're come not coming at it from any kind of like experience with people like me, or experience That's with right. like you know colonized people. Like that would fill their glass with something else. So it's a little bit of the billiard ball thing, but I think of it in terms of like you know empty and full glasses. So yeah, like, that's okay. a good metaphor, too, that if you don't have any previous knowledge, you just accept the mainstream, you know, cultural production and say, right. well, this must be how it was. The Puerto Rico game is not, you know, it's it's not coming at me with an agenda. So I think it's just a board game. And so you right. let that fill up your glass when in actuality, you know, it's produced by this culture that has had this agenda for a long time. So imagine. So, OK, I'm going to try to construct this analogy on the fly here. Uh, I'll say so. Imagine I'm a person who wants to share my culture. And everybody wants to kind of share where they're from. That, that's just like share the life experience. That's, you know, you don't just show up to a game. You show up with your whole thing and you want to be accepted and, and all that kind of thing. So then I want to share, but like I'm going into spaces with my little cup full of my own culture or my little like, you know, my, my picture full of like experience, but I have nowhere to pour it because the other glasses are already full. That's right. Of BS. Yes, that's right? right, and the, and the, and that the game is what did that, and the or, or lots of cultural medium, like you know, like the old westerns, you know, right. of uh, of cowboys. Like, there's a lot of cultural media that kind of have have this presentation of like, okay, this is the way the world is. It's natural. It's inevitable. Uh, and you know, the, the the hierarchy looks a certain way, and this is the way it was always supposed to be. And so that has filled people's glasses when it comes to thinking about history. So like, there's when I pour into a full glass that's where the friction comes from because that's where you get spillage yeah that's a great metaphor and it's also like i like that metaphor because it it show you know it addresses this sort of like uh this sort of uh false half-assed critique that the trolls make which is like oh it's just a game it's like yeah i mean you're not wrong it is just a game a game is not going to like you know as as someone who doesn't believe in the magic bullet theory and only loosely believes in the billiard ball theory like yeah, a game is not going to do a lot to you, to your mind. Your mind is more powerful than a board game. But as a, as, you know, if Puerto Rico and colonizer games are one drop in the glass, the more drops you put in that glass, suddenly it's going to fill up. And there are powerful cultural forces that that right. are behind this sort of like right. overflow of, you it's know, not just like Western and board games, and, right. you know, all these things are connected. And so, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a good way. I like your glass metaphor because it's a good way to show the board games are a part of this thing while not necessarily being all of this thing, but that it's still worth addressing. Yeah, Very nuanced. I like that. 
It's part of a way. They, I, I just made a theory. Great. It's great. It's very good. You should publish it. Uh, I, <laughs> that takes work, man. You're not kidding. <laughs> uh, okay. So like in terms of the harm, right? This, this, this weird word that, that people that frustrate people. Um, the harm is that as people, we want to be able to pour our stuff. We want to be able to share. And when we f- encounter all this resistance to our real, like our real realities, you know, and, you know, then it, then it starts to, the harm really starts to bite back. So it's like, if I um, don't conform to that expectation, if I don't say that colonization was, if I say colonization was a bad thing, then I get that snapback. Well, colonization was a good thing. I learned that. I learned that from, you know, all these other culture media, including games like Puerto Rico. So like, there is that, th- th- that's where the pushback comes from. And that's where it's like, you know, I have my lived experience and like, I'm actually being questioned on my lived experience. Really? Yeah, and then, right. and the snapback can, and it can it can result in exclusion. Like it can result in people just not feeling like they want to be here, which is why I do what I do. So thank you very much for giving me that that the a little bit of um vocabulary to talk about some of this stuff. So like you know, in terms of the procedure, this all emerges not necessarily because Puerto Rico had this theme. It's because of the procedure in those games, right? And I think also, yeah. like I was thinking about your when I when I read the press release about your your work on the new edition, eighteen ninety seven, right? Puerto Rico, eighteen ninety seven. I was a little bit skeptical at first, not because I'm like skeptical of you as a default, but I was like, oh, you know, Jason's just changing the names of things and not changing how the game works. And at first, I was like, I don't know if the procedural messages will carry through. You know, right. it's like this is a game about extraction, and and the mechanics are thus extractive. But then I was thinking about it again and I was rereading some procedural rhetoric stuff and I was like, no, the naming is also important. That it's not just, there is nothing inherently extractive about any board game mechanic until you give it a name and say that you are, what you are doing is taking goods out of the land and sending them back to the right. colonial center. Right. And, and, and it's the naming, you know, the, the mechanics themselves might suggest that, but it's the names that you give things that really gives them their procedural rhetorical power. And so... I, I came back around after my moment of, of skepticism and, you know, I, I know you and I trust you in your work. And so I said, let me, let me dig in and let me get past this kind of first brush of like, he's not changing the mechanics. And I came to a place where I was more like, oh yeah, that makes sense. It's a, from a marketing perspective, it's good to not change the mechanics because people like this game. It's a classic. And B, I do think that the, the naming, the naming of things matters. And so, mm-hmm. uh, I like it. I hope I haven't yeah. come off as being too negative, I mean, but I want well, to no, say I mean, this thought process of like, oh yeah, the mechanics don't change and that's okay. That the the, the procedures and the and maybe the rhetorical part of procedural rhetoric is what you've you've intervened in and that's very cool and I, I love it and I'm excited to see the new game. Well, there was a part of, and you could sort of speak to this because we've, you've worked with Catan. Uh, there's a part of the gaming um, segment that says, okay, this is a colonization game and you can't extract the colonization from this game. And I'm like, of course you can. <laughs> it's, it's bits and it's you know I, I think of it like i think of themes like a magic trick right so like you know uh like magic tricks okay they, they present a bunch of dots that the, the audience fills in the gaps and then the, the magician kind of rearranges the dots really fast and it's like whoa yes right you know right. and so like all the, the the magician didn't really do anything they just like kind of create an expectation arrange a couple of dots and then completely shift the people's expectations just by changing with people's perception right so like you've, I, you've arranged these elements of the game mechanics and the names of the game mechanics and the procedures you take and you rely on the player's brain to then mesh those all together and say, aha, I am now, I am now behaving in a liberatory fashion for my own sort of 
farming here right. and, and not behaving in an extractive colonial fashion. Colonization happened in here. It didn't happen on the table. Yeah. That was the big yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah. And so you, so, okay, you have, um, cause you, I remember when you, when I first kind of talked about this, you had linked an article, like you were redoing Catan, right? Yes. So talk through that. That's a little bit interesting what you did. Yeah. There. This was sort of my first intervention into the, the board game space. And I actually, uh, I was inspired by, by playing, someone suggested we play Puerto Rico. And I like looked at it and I was like, oh, <laughs> um, it was the, you know, the original one with the brown discs, not the, right. not the, the whitewashed, purple washed discs. Um, and, and I was like, oh, like, why do I feel that way? And so I was, I was thinking about your, your notion of harm there because it's like, you know, the game didn't harm me, but it definitely had an affective with an A, not with an E, an affective impact on me where I was like, oh, I feel weird. Yeah. And, and Catan made me feel similarly. At first I, I played it and I was like, oh, this is cool. You know, that was like my intro into the, the hobby, like so many of us. Um, and, and I loved it and I still have a soft spot for Catan. But I was like, like the, the sort of overarching narrative that it was participating in rubbed me the wrong way. And so uh, basically this, what I'm talking about is the sort of colonial narrative, right? If you are settlers of Catan, the, the game title has since been rewritten to, mm -hmm. to erase that, which I think is smart on, on Mayfair's part um, or Catan Studio or whoever owns it now. Asmodee. But Asmodee, of course, <laughs> Asmodee, who owns everything now. Yeah. Speaking of colonial extractive logic. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, um, what was I saying? Oh yeah, so I was sort of uncomfortable by this, this myth that, that Catan was having us participate in of this empty land. And so I just wanted to like, challenge that. And so I wrote a rules version and then did a little bit of a, a write-up about kind of that thought process that, that adds a, a native indigenous peoples to Catan. Um, and, you know, this was like, it was in 2015. I was like younger then and, and whatever. What I'm trying to say is now it feels weird to me as like a white guy with no indigenous background to have, have done this. Um, but but uh, a couple of indigenous folks who've read it and cited it have been very kind to me about it. And they were like, this is a good first step. And maybe Greg should think about some other things. And for sure. I'm like, yeah, for sure. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm learning and growing like all of us, but, but my thought was, and, and I was very specific in the piece about this was I wanted to address, I wasn't saying Catan is bad and no one should play it. I was specifically trying to dig into my own feelings and say, why did this make me feel weird? what do I feel like this sort of like historical error or like this participation in this problematic myth that is like a very common American story and, and how can I address it head on via the game's mechanics? And so, you know, a lot of uh, cr criticisms have been like, Greg was trying to cancel Catan and no one should ever play Catan now. Or like the other argument is like, well, Klaus Teuber was German. And so he wasn't participating in this American myth. And I'm like, yeah, like, I don't care. Like I, you know, this was not about, this was about me and my feelings playing Catan and trying to use my knowledge as a board game designer to create something that could address those feelings. And so um, in, in, this, in this rules modification, one player plays a sort of asymmetric indigenous population and mm. competes with the settlers and tries to drive them off and stuff. Oh, so you had created like a whole new mechanism layer. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's of, a whole, the whole yeah. rule set for, for people are there when you get there because- right. That's always how it is. And, mm -hmm. and so then it's like, what, what do you do and how do those people resist? And, uh, and that's sort of the, the game. That's sort of the challenge. And I mean, it's, it's playable. There are things I would change about it now as a game, but it's, it's, you know, it's sort of goal was like as an intervention to, to ask about this question of like, well, yeah, no one's there. And we have this big problem in America with this. Oh yeah. You know, we have this story of, well, when we got here, no one was here. Oh, well, 
you know, those people were here, but they don't count. And that's like, that's just like a, right. a brutal, it's a, a cover for terrible genocide. And so mm-hmm. and that, that's what that Catan piece was all about. So just kind of uh, to visualize the resistance. Exactly. And so, yeah. and, and which is um, interesting, but it's not what people want in terms of what they, when they play Catan, when they right. play Puerto Rico, when they play Mombasa, when they play, you know, all these Euro games, what they want is the low interaction. Like they don't want to have to, they, they don't want to have to deal with the moral part and they don't want to have to deal with like the actual strategizing against another mind. They just want to like focus on their engine and their building. You know, right. that's that, that is the sense that, 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 um, that Euro player wanted. And that's actually what I had to contend with in the Puerto Rico theme. Like um, not just because, you know, the people love the mechanisms, but like people love the sensibility of sitting down and like they, they know they're going to get a low interaction, low friction Euro game, except for like the, the, the trading post <laughs> right. or something like that. That's like the only point, like the, most of it, it's, it's, it's simple. So it's like, I couldn't add resistance. I could, like, I, I played with this. I played with like um, using the, the chips and like have rolling, like, you know, you, you produce and then you roll a D six and on a six, you like, you lose them or something bad happens. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, that would have been more, in terms of like highlighting the quote unquote resistance, that would have been a way to go, which is kind of something like well, along with what you did. What I figured out was like, you know what, what if I just changed the, like swapped out the colonized perspective entirely and just like, okay, this is an economic actor. There's economic actors all over the place. Totally. Totally. But like, okay, now we have, now we can kind of, you know, let's bring in a independent farmer. Let's bring in the, you know, like they can do that too. You know, and, right. and then so like what I did was like I, I kind of I just made it hyper local. I just made Puerto Rican Agricola, really. It's great. It's so good. It. <laughs> yeah. And I think like I think about your point of like people just want to play a game. And it's like in that sense, you know, my Catan intervention or your Puerto Rico intervention, it's like, I don't care if people want to play base Catan. And it's like, you know, they can they can reenact this myth or they might just ignore this troubling myth or they might sure. say, well, this is, you know, Iceland, which is like one of the few settlement stories where the land was actually empty or whatever uh you know there's there's two modes at which board games interact that's sort of like a private sphere of like well it's me and my family playing a game at our table and and you know that does that does sort of put little droppers in people's cups to use our earlier metaphor Mm -hmm. but i was more interested in in intervening on the scale of like Catan is telling a cultural story and as a cultural artifact it's interesting to think about these things whether you ever play my intervention or not or whether Mm -hmm. people you know keep their old copy of Puerto Rico, but imagine themselves in this new world that you've created for them. Like, that's cool. And it's like, it's important to produce the things at the level of cultural production. Right, right. But it also doesn't mean like, you know, I'm not going to try and come into everyone's homes and and take their copies of Catan and replace <laughs> them with my modified Catan. Like, it's in your house. Uh, like, so I guess like, you know, drawing back to what we talk about in, in terms of games as media, right? I think that's a, it gives us a, a little bit of a sense of like how games can operate in terms of that procedural stuff. Are there other examples that you can think of where games the, or the procedure of the games, like the repeated actions, 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 uh, give other kinds of messages? Like we'd be focused on the colonization, but there's other things too. So have you thought about that kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, I think the example that jumps right to the front of my mind, because you know who I am and what I've been working on is, is block by block, which as I think we talked about on your show where TL likes to talk about whenever we talk about the game publicly, like the sort of player positionality of who are the players, right? In, in Puerto Rico, you change the players from, you know, colonial administrators to independent farmers. And right. so suddenly the choices you're making have different meanings in block by block. It's like, yeah, a lot of games are about, you know, state actors or managers 
or heads of militaries. And in block by block, the players uh, become, you know, uh, uh, activists and, mm -hmm. and organizers. And so who the player is, I think, is a big way to engage procedurally of thinking about, you know, like, like the kinds of choices you get to make are determined by who you are to a certain extent. And so it's easy for board games to adopt the positionality of someone who gets to make a lot of choices like the president. And it's harder, but I think more interesting and rewarding for board games to adopt the, the positions of, or to ask the players to adopt the positions of people whose choices might be more limited, but have potentially interesting ramifications like in block by block. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, like the labor organizer or the, the worker or the rare, you know, like the, you have these railroad games, like, okay, what would happen if we, if it was from the perspective of the railroad worker? You know? Man, I have a dream. My my Catan <laughs> intervention. I really want to do a ticket to ride intervention mm. where you can do a railroad strike. Um, <laughs> I've been thinking about this for like 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 years, and mm. I can never. I, I a I never have the project space to put it on the front burner, and b when I like think about it as like shower thoughts, like trying to brainstorm, it never comes out. So I'll put it out there. If you want to make a, a an intervention, it's ticket to ride, and any listeners where you get to strike the railroad. I would play that. I would, mm -hmm. I would love to play that. Mm -hmm. And so are you optimistic about board games ability to, cause I mean, board games, like, because I, they indulge in what I call boss fantasies, right. You know, uh, you know, these are all boss, like, you know, we're all bosses, the workers don't give us any trouble. And so I think that that cultural message has been radiated out uh, along with other types of messages. Are you optimistic that board games as a medium can really penetrate and, you know, uh, form that uh, magnetic enough opposite billiard ball, <laughs> so to speak. Oh, yeah. yeah, I am. I am optimistic. I think, you know, it's a very niche space. It's a small hobby, even though it's a growing hobby. But I do think that board games, you know, they, they present narratives. I imagine like a, an alternate world where instead of Charles Darrow's Monopoly, which is about how fun it is to be a, a you know, property owner at Atlantic City, we got Lizzie McGee's The Landlord's Game which is about how landlords suck and are bad. Um, like, man, imagine, imagine the landlord's game is like the most popular department store game. What kind of world would we be living in? That would be super cool. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think I, I, am, I am generally optimistic. Um, yeah. Very cool. Uh, so I think we covered everything on the docket. Uh, once again, uh, ahoy. We are we we have to come back, to, even though we just knock capitalism for twenty minutes. We have to come back to selling our products. Uh, but what we're markets, trying, markets right. and capitalism are not necessarily directly. Ah, yeah, always had whatever. Markets. That's a conversation for another day. We've Actually, always had markets. We have I, not always yes, had capitalism. That's right. I I do have another plug if I could drop yes, really quick. Please. I think this is. I don't know. I think this might be a this might be a scoop for you. Um, I just signed uh, with Tessa Collective, who does really cool activist games, oh, wow. to do the official board game adaptation of Howard Zinn's People's History of the wow. United States. Um, so I'm going to be working <laughs> wow. on that this summer and fall. How does that um, work? That's that's crazy. Okay. I don't if, know. I'm if still very. I'm still very early people's history. Design. I'm very. I, it, people's history was one of my inspirations for this for my Puerto Rico weaver. It, it's people's history, right? So it's like, how do I, you know, and each chapter, it's a it's a big history textbook, and each chapter focuses on a, a slice, a huge slice of American history. So it's like, let's tell the 1492 era from the perspective of the natives. Let's tell the uh, railroad era from the perspective of striking workers. Let's tell uh, the. Um, Indian removals from the perspective of the Indians that were removed by interjection. And it just goes uh, chapter by chapter, it kind of selects a perspective. So it's a huge sweep. There's a lot of facts in there. How do you gamify that? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm still very early in the design, so I hesitate to commit to too much. But but yeah, one of the first things that the Tessa folks and I talked about was like, you know, I don't have the the cultural positionality to adopt these positions that the book does. And so the the, the sweep of the game, as I'm conce- concepting it right now, is that it's going to be about historiography. It's going to mm-hmm. zoom out a little bit and be not about these individual elements, although they will, of course, show up in the game probably as cards. But it's going to be more about this this tug of war between the establishment history, the sort of oppressor history and the resistance history sort of as a group and, and the players will be attempting to, to mm. modify this, this sweep. So Interesting. we'll see how it goes. Tessa had, does great work and, and has some great people who will provide good perspectives for, you know, me as a white guy. So I'm, I'm very excited to be working with them. And this is, this is very new. Excellent. I'm sure I'll be talking to you about it because I'm excited to pick your brain about all this stuff. Very cool. All right. Uh, lots of exciting stuff coming from Greg. Uh, and please, uh, you know, reach out. Uh, Greg is very open. Like I, I hate Greg up very, very quickly. Uh, I love the chat. <laughs> love the chat on Twitter. So share the Twitters. Yeah. So I'm at Greg is on the go. Greg is G-R-E-G, not G-R-E-G-G. Okay. Uh, and uh, elsewhere. And you'll be able to uh, pre-order his game Ahoy very soon from the leader website. Uh, Greg Loring Albright, thank you so much for stopping by the show. Thank you for having me. This was a great chat. If you can change your mind, you can change the world, people. So until next time, bye, everybody. Thanks for joining us again for the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. Also, join us for games and discussion on our Discord channel. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash one stop or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and we'll see you next week for another Top 5 list.